Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. For most of us, learning to read is an important milestone in our intellectual development, a cornerstone on which our educations and professional lives are built, and one of the primary mechanisms through which we connect with the world. But for some individuals, specifically those affected by neurological disorders such as dyslexia or dementia, reading is an experience fraught with challenges, affecting their lives in a variety of surprising ways. Our guest today is Matthew Rubery, a professor of modern literature at Queen Mary University of London. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Matt is working on a new book, examining the experiences of neurodivergent readers and shining a light on the many complex ways that reading shapes all of our lives, contributes to our sense of ourselves, and determines the ways in which we interact with the world. Welcome, Matt. Thanks. So why don't we start with some definitions for our readers? What neurodivergent readers, what, what does that mean? And give us some examples, please. Sure. Neurodiversity refers to different ways of thinking. Um, So I'm looking at readers who might read in unusual ways, might find it difficult to learn to read, or might lose the ability to read. And instead of thinking of these people as non-readers, I'm trying to get us to think about reading in a broader way that might think about all the different ways in which we read. So there's been a big shift in the field of disability studies over the last 10 or 20 years from thinking about uh, disability in terms of deficits or things people can't do to thinking about it in terms of differences, all the things that people can do, even if they do them in different ways. And what about some examples What uh, that would be familiar to our audience? So the best example I can think of when it comes to neurodivergent reading or people who read in different ways uh, is Kim Peek. And he might be familiar to people through the film Rain Man, um, there is an autistic character played by Dustin Hoffman. Kim Peek was one of the uh, real-life people who that character was based on. Um, Kim's a fascinating person in many ways, but particularly in terms of the way he read. He, at the age of six, memorized the index to an entire set of encyclopedias. Um, he went on to read over 12,000 books, and not just read them, but memorize them. He knew all of their contents nearly word for word. Um, here in the nickname, the computer, or some people called him the human Google for his phenomenal memory. Um, and he was interesting not just for what he read or the, the amounts that he read, uh, but for how he read. So he could read two pages at the same time. He'd read um, the left page with his left eye, right page with his right eye. It took about 10 seconds to do that. It would take ordinary reader two or three minutes to do that. Um, it also didn't matter whether the book was sideways, whether it was upside down, or whether it was in a mirror he could still read it just as quickly. So he was an incredible reader in many ways, but at the same time, he struggled with other aspects of life. Um, He wasn't able to dress himself in the morning. He couldn't brush his own teeth. So it's a real mix of supreme ability and also some struggles that make him sort of a fascinating person to think about in terms of Mm -hmm. reading and how how reading fit into his life. And uh, Vladimir Nabokov as well uh, was a a senator synesthetic reader as well, correct? Didn't he read uh, letters as colors? That's right. Um, So synesthetes often see black and white text on the page in different colors. So a black letter A might be perceived as a red letter A in their their minds. Um, And Nabokov's the the best example we have in in his his great autobiography, Speak Memory. He describes 
all the different colors that he sees letters in. Um, the letter A, for instance, he sees in the, the tint of weathered wood. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great description because you know, he's not just saying, I see uh, letters in the color red or the color green. I mean, he describes a specific texture. It would be um, a dappled rose color rather than just ordinary red, let's say. Um, so I think that gives us some insight into how he views the world, why he views the world in such aestheticized terms, because he's already seeing the alphabet in such beautiful ways, too. So one of the questions I take up is, how would it influence uh, the way you read mm-hmm. if you're seeing the letters in these sort of brilliant, beautiful colors? Right. So let's, let's, let's go there a bit. Um, so in, at the outset, you, you mentioned how your study sort of expands our understanding of the very concept of reading. And, and in your project description, you talk about reading against the brain. Um, so unpack that for us a bit. Sure. I've had lots of discussions over the last 25 years about what reading means. I teach in an English department. Most of my work is centered on reading. So you would think I'd be in a pretty good position to understand what that term means. And yet, the more I talk about it with people, the more I realize how much we don't understand about the term and uh, how many different versions of that word people use when they talk about reading. Um, So for instance, some people talk about reading as just the process of decoding a text, um, translating printed letters into language in our minds. Um, Neuroscientists would talk about reading in that sense. But that's a very limited way Um, I think the more important dimension of reading is comprehension. So once you've translated those letters into language, um, what do you do with them then? And I think that's what we're really interested in when we talk about whether someone read a book or not. We don't really mean, did you translate the letters into meaning? We mean, did you make sense of the story? What did you make of that? And that's where our arguments start. Mm -hmm. Um, I want us to sort of take an even broader view of reading, not just in visual terms, reading letters with our eyes, but to think about all the ways in which we can read. So we can also read with our fingers. Blind people who read uh, with Braille, for instance, uh, are not using their eyes, but they're still translating um, graphic information or tactile information into language. Um, or people who listen to audiobooks uh, are still getting the words of the text, even if it's through a different sense. I think what really matters here is what happens to that information in the brain, not how it reaches the brain. So... Reading has, in developed countries and developing countries, it has such a status. It's a signifier of status. People's identities are, are surrounded by their ability to read, so it has a tremendous impact on people's lives. Um, in terms of what we might call ideal readers, and you're dealing with unideal readers. So how is your study sort of complicating that whole sense of class that comes with reading? Um, I'm glad you brought up the term ideal readers. I think for a long time, uh, people in the field of literary studies talked about ideal readers, um, a hypothetical reader who wasn't really affected by the body in any way. I, I, I think there's been a lot of attention over the last uh, two or three decades to readers with bodies. Um, so how does it affect the way you read if you're a woman, say, or if you're an African-American? Um, I want to take it one step further and look at how it affects the way we read Uh, if you're neurodiverse, if you think differently than other people, um, if you have dyslexia, for instance. So I think that's sort of the next next frontier. And it's been difficult to recover any information um, historically about the way neurodiverse readers read because readers don't tend to leave traces of what they're doing. That that happens in your head. Um, 
I think now that we do have brain scans, we have a lot more information, and I think we have some ways of recovering information about the way people think. I mean, one of the ways I've come up with is looking at um, medical case studies that uh, tend to not be uh, a popular source of information um, among literary historians, at least. But I think we can sort of read those in a way that gets out the way people responded to losing the ability to read. So when it comes to class, I think that's one of the dimensions that um, people have restored to histories of reading lately. Um, how would a working class reader say read differently than an elite reader um, who has a much more extensive education? I want to add a neurodiversity to the mix too and say not just how do people read if they come from different backgrounds, but also how do they read if their brains work differently. Mm-hmm. Now many of our, in our audience are no doubt familiar with Oliver Sacks' work and his, I guess, major turn or contribution is, is focusing on the patient rather than the pathology. So how does your work parallel that or extend it? My method uh, owes a huge debt to Oliver Sacks. Um, he reached a public with stories of people affected by neurological disorders and told them in a very humane way. Um, he received, he's received a lot of criticism from people, particularly in the field of disability studies, uh, who suspected that he was exploiting these people, um, and particularly a group of people who didn't necessarily have full say over whether they wanted their stories told or not. I think that w- was well-intentioned criticism, but also went a bit too far in the sense that he really raised, raised awareness of all the different ways in which people's minds work out there, and he did it in what I thought was a very sympathetic way, with a few minor exceptions. Um, I think his reputation has changed over the last 10 years, too, once he brought out his, his own autobiography and was very candid about all the quirks that have affected him over the years. So rather than presenting himself as the um, impersonal expert looking at these people with problems, he seems to be speaking to people from the same level. I'm trying to do something similar in looking at a lot of case studies of people who think differently than other people um, and try to do it in an equally sympathetic way. Um, at the same time, I don't think I've come up against the ethical problems of working with live patients the way he's doing it. Mm-hmm. I think my challenge is just finding these examples out there, going through the historical record, um, and finding the voices of people who haven't been given the opportunity to speak in the past. Now, we have a number of literary depictions, of course, uh, Gulliver's Travels with the Stroldbergs, um, who can't read, can no longer read because their memory won't carry them forward from the beginning to the end of a sentence. A uh, Thousand Years of Solitude, um, where people essentially are losing their memories and they're putting little labels up to remind themselves of things. Are there other sort of very poignant literary or musical or filmic examples? Sure. I I think what literature and other arts can do is add that affective or emotional dimension to the experience of losing the ability to read uh, that is left out of uh, official case studies. So going through a century or two of medical case studies, I mean, what you notice is the medical professionals want to eliminate the the personal characteristics from those reports. They want to identify clinical characteristics that can be generalized to all patients. Um, I want to do the exact opposite. I want to sort of find those stories of 
how individual people were affected by having uh, a reading disorder of some sort. And the best place to do that is going through uh, fiction. Um, a case that comes to mind is George Eliot's great novel, Romola. There's a character named Baldessari in that, for instance, and he loses the ability to read Greek, and he experiences it as a profound loss. It's not, it's not entirely clear the source of that uh, loss of Greek in the novel. You can't tell whether it's just sort of um, an age-related uh, effect or whether it might be a neurological problem. Um, but I don't think that matters because what Eliot is focused on is how Baldessari responds to um, losing something that has meant so much to him in his life. And this character, in a very poignant way, walks around holding his head, saying, uh, crying about how he's lost something so important to him. Mm-hmm. By the way, I, I meant to say 100 years of solitude, not a 1,000. That's too many <laughs> centuries. Um, so in conclusion, it, I'm really interested in how you got interested in this topic yourself. I mean, what, what, what drew you in your personal life or your intellectual life to focus uh, in this area? My last book was called The Untold Story of the Talking Book, and it dealt with debates over what counts as real reading. Does listening to an audiobook deserve the same amount of credit as reading a book with your eyes? That really started uh, the process for me of thinking about well, what other forms of reading don't count as real reading in some people's eyes or don't get the respect or attention uh, I think they deserve. And I started looking much more widely at other um, unusual categories of reading. So I came across an instance in which a stroke survivor uh, read with his tongue. He would trace the shapes of letters on the roof of his mouth. Does that count as real reading? Uh, According to some definitions of the term and according to some people's perspective, no, that's a very unusual way of reading. Um, I think we should use cases like that to broaden our definition of reading and to think about it as even more complex, even more multidimensional, even more rich than we usually think of it as. So to me, it's you know an exciting time to look at the history of reading because we can sort of bring in all these examples that have been left out of standard histories and get people to sort of think about reading as an even more exciting term than it already is. Well, thank you, Matthew Rupery, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.